Hey guys, this is Emmett. Welcome to your weekly installment of Exhaust, your weekly podcast about why nothing feels possible. Today, I am here with John. Hey guys. And we have uh, a guest. I'm very excited to talk to you. Um, he and I have been chatting for a few years about lib psychosis over Donald Trump and things like that and sort of the age of post-politics. And we've got some other stuff to talk to him about because his research is indeed capacious. This is um, Olivier Jutel at the University of Otago in uh, right. New Zealand, right? Welcome. Yeah, Denis, Denis New Zealand. What's going on, Emmett? It's so great to talk to my fellow lib puncher and <laughs> kind of cultural, cultural sociologist of why the libs love to lose. And uh, John, it's all meant yeah, to be. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So this is the first installment of what's going to become our Pacific Rim series, where we try to understand what's happening out in the Pacific area, past and present. And I learned this year, um, and perhaps you've been doing this for longer, but like cryptocurrency and blockchain has now become part of your research acumen. And so I was wondering how, like, tell us the story of that, like your background and what brought you to that. Oh, God. If, um, if my work ever goes before like a kind of research committee, they, they might call me like an immature researcher and that I like, I bounce around a lot. Like I, you know, I wrote about populism for a long time and uh, then everybody started doing Yasha Monk style stuff about populism. And I was like, okay, I'm sick of this space and you know, <laughs> whatever my contribution to it, it's there a little bit, but I just, I can't be fucked talking about populism anymore because um, actually a lot of people, you know, the post-politics thing was like, oh yeah, populism occupies this space, this antagonistic terrain in the polity that has to exist. And, you know, uh, Emmett, you know, the kind of Schmidtian. Uh, yeah, it comes out of Chantal Mouffe and Ernesto Lacroix, yeah. like their whole idea that like, you know, you're going to have weird class collaborations that erupt within a polity. And that's sort of what populism looks like because politics is an agonistic space where there is no final resolution. Now, if you make that argument, they call you a red brown. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You're I, a Strasserite for sure. <laughs> it's it's fucking insane. Like, I mean, this is and the 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 liberal progressive left used to get the Thomas Frank thing in the mm -hmm. night. You know, this is just Thomas Frank. It's not like actually anything. This is not you know back to to your theme last show. You know, this is not like Steve Bannon is a genius. It's like no, like this is an opportunistic occupying of this space. And if you don't speak to this and like, whatever, I uh, was at the football club last night with uh, a Yorkshireman, you know, my, my generations of generations labor. And then yes, of course they all voted Brexit because you'll cut off an arm to, you know, hurt uh, a Londoner kind of cosmopolitan. Mm -hmm. Well, the last thing yeah, and you also don't want yeah. the EU to like what, like privatize the rail system or whatever. Like, yeah. um, there were plenty of people who didn't want that. I mean, also, I thought it was a huge slap in the face to democracy for labor to be like, actually, maybe not. And I was like, ah, it seems like that'll hurt you in the long run. Um, mm. Yeah, and this is my current. Oh my god, I was supposed to be talking about why I got into blockchain, but we'll in New Zealand, right? Yeah, in New Zealand right now, like we have a um, a labor party that's getting kind of global accolades for for leading a pretty effective response and a good kind of 
sound scientific policy-based response to, to COVID. And that is all true. And they are good communicators and all the like, but they'll see the lesson of Corbin and Sanders is like, oh my God, what a terrible thing. This, you know, this disaster of any kind of like left pivot, like they're mm-hmm. of the same milk that is just utterly terrified of, of something like that. And so look, I mean, maybe there's enough foreign capital and bolt hole escapees coming to New Zealand to inflate the economy to mm-hmm. prevent that right space ever kind of, you know, accumulating some energy and, and populist anger. But like, this is, this is a problem. And kind of uh, triangulation centrism is feeding that problem. And in the field of populism studies, there is incredible, I mean, everybody's publishing papers that takes as axiomatic that, you know, whatever rational, scientific-led, centrist policy is like the, def- is, is the definition of like the democratic good life or something. And it seems like there is a complete terror of the power of politics, right? Mm-hmm. There's a big fear mm-hmm. of what politics might do. It seemed to almost to solely be thought of as like plebiscite catastrophes or uh, Clinton Blairism. And like, that's what you get. Right, right. Well, gosh, I mean, I was, we're currently in a moment right now where the populist energy is, is around kind of COVID truther stuff and mm. kind of soft QAnon and. Yeah, um, Fuck yeah it is. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And, uh, and this is happening really quickly. Mm-hmm. So before we kind of are ready in New Zealand to declare the kind of rule of like centrist technocratic Labour Party for the next 10 years, it's like, okay, this, this, this spirals very quickly. But right now it's being led by a, a Facebook poster who is, is Māori, so indigenous, mm-hmm. and is speaking to a working class um, constituency in the kind of north of the country, which is a really impoverished heavily indigenous part of the population and the academic lefty types that whatever I cavort with online and that sort of thing. They're just so wanting to just, uh, what's the word? I mean, whether it's deplorables or AstroTurf or these are not real people and Mm. we're the science constituency, even amongst people that I wouldn't, necessarily think of identifying as super strong libs there's just a hatred of the masses a hatred of democracy mm-hmm. and we've lost the capacity to to what to think that uh whatever the gramsci quote you know every man's a revolutionary like that's mm-hmm. yeah every, we, every cook can govern yeah, yeah 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 no that's like forget about it like yeah have you seen the people lately would be yes. the response to and like yes we are in a kind of intellectually politically impoverished place but it just, it just seems like a completely un- an abandonment of, of that idea. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm wondering if like your time in that space and populism, like uh, you're like, okay, I'm taking a look at what's happening with this and it seems to be getting taken over by uh, centrist fear of the masses. And that's the only discussion on the table right now about populism. This is boring now and it's uninteresting and it's unfruitful. I'm wondering if some of, the sort of techno utopianism that comes from blockchain started to like chime in and you're like, Oh, I recognize this discourse. And like, that's part of how it happened. Two things happen. One, uh, well, first of all, Kim.com 
Okay. Oh, <laughs> man, I forgot about Mega Upload. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. This happened all in New Zealand, right? Five Eyes, and mm-hmm. uh, he was, you know, brought to this country, essentially entrapped, raided, all the rest of it. And uh, he is, he was like good political talent, whatever that word means. And um, he led a very strange experience uh, experiment in in New Zealand um, as ostensibly as, as, as a cyber libertarian mm-hmm. right wing guy um, who bought out the radical left to the extent like when I say the radical left, like there was a party because of our parliamentary system. We had um, a longstanding Maori activist named Hone Harawira, who was part of uh, uh, the Māori renaissance of the 70s and 80s, legendary activist, and there, a party formed around him because he had uh, an electoral seat, which meant that other people could coattail in. Anyway, um, and the Trotskyite newspaper Campus Left was was into him. Some of our service unions were supporting that party. Um, and Kim.com came along and was just throwing money. And just was like, hey, let's... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's have a gamified celebrity talent show candidate selection process. It was a, it was, it was very weird. It was, a, you know, it's the way that libertarians come in and talk about, hey, we, we believe in, you know, legalizing weed. Come on, kids, let's go. It was, so it was a kind of um, a takeover of that space and it was an incredible failure um, but it was also um, this kind of global lightning rod event for like Glenn Greenwald parachuted in to do like a, 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 an event called the moment of truth, which was supposed to like mask off, reveal the prime minister as a liar. And it all spectacularly backfired, but it had, you know, big time V for vendetta matrix energy. Yeah. And that sounds like a, a big, was this like pre Snowden? Well, no, cause Snowden was there. Snowden and Assange both phoned in and this was supposed to be this was six days before the election and kim.com announced the launch of his encrypted skype killer platform called mega chat that's right so god i so, forgot all this got me- all this got memory hold it really brought into relief for me kind of the politics of tech mm-hmm. uh, and this weird kind of uh left cultural signification which is actually you know you know um, and, and listen, this is post Assange, post Snowden. Of course, these uh, sorts of um, concerns of empire, and of, of course, I was part of the left. And and in New Zealand, we were trying to like figure out um, how to get out of like Five Eyes, basically. Like, can we have a campaign to, to get us out of this? Um, well, Five Eyes is a surveillance consortium formed right. between the United States. I think Australia is in there too, right? New Zealand. Yeah, so uh, Canada, UK, yeah. Australia, New Zealand. Yeah. We are really important. We have a lot of Farsi kind of, uh, so mm-hmm. we we're spying on that region. Yeah. Um, and it, actually, I got to shout out, there's a really incredible uh, investigative journalist. His name is Nikki Hager and Seymour Hirsch has basically like called him like the greatest investigative reporter working today. He's um he he actually uh, broke five eyes in like '95. That was oh, his wow. story. And Glenn Greenwald and Snowden, rather than like you know work through a New Zealand journalist and get the story out and build sort of like a a credibility in the public forum in that traditional sense, we're just like no, we're hacker supermen, you know, 
swoop down, boom, and then uh, break the smoke bomb and and yeah. John, Johnny Mnemonic your way through. Yeah, yeah, which is politics, kind of like yeah. that's 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 the the view. Like, there's no mass movements. There's just like you're just ne- everybody's neo from the matrix. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. And so that so that, well, that hipped you to the the politics of tech, which is yeah, sort of what yeah, it, drew your attention. It, it, yeah, it put me in contact with some some good folks in this area. Like um, uh, David Columbia is a really good pal, and his work on on the cultural logic of computation, his book on uh, Bitcoin, um, are both excellent. Uh, Yasha Levine's uh, Surveillance Valley. Yeah, that's a great um, history book. Yeah, yeah, fantastic book. Mark 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 Ames did some really good reporting with with Yasha as well about Glenn Greenwald and the Intercept and Omidyar and how the NGO sphere is really interested in, I mean, okay, kind of like these vague discourses of, of openness. And mm-hmm. actually, if you, if, you, if you think about things like the Tor Project and this kind of NGO realm of connecting civil society from the ground up in developing countries and a kind of Americanized vision of the end of history mm-hmm. through communicative technology and and so the, the, the specific kind of, I don't know, political space that The Intercept exists in, um, and increasingly now that a lot of it's kind of, I don't know, crit- critique of empire has been totally blunted and um, mm-hmm. fits in this sort of like American cultural imperialist kind of narrative about the internet as, to, back to the post-politics thing, this one universal mechanism of, of politics, of communication, mm-hmm. of self-determination. And what we need to do is we need to expand connectivity, right? And expand the network. And, and we used to, we, um, there was a time where it might be politically feasible to think of the big tech platforms as somehow universal networks as opposed to like American imperialist. Right. um, Yeah. I mean, I think that's sort of like, uh, it's hard to go back in my mind to like the 2010s era politics because it was very different. Um, Mm -hmm. And I mean, a lot of what we're experiencing now is sort of born there, like the 4chan boards, like the Guy Fox stuff, like all this stuff has its seeds there. But one of the things that I found interesting as I've like sort of, come of age, you know, in that era and also become, you know, an adult with a more sophisticated understanding of what's going on is realizing how a sort of like Habermasian discourse idea, in other words, we're truly free when basically everyone gets to have their say um, and has equal opportunity and equal length to have their say. And the sort of tech utopianism um, about these platforms and the discourse capabilities they generate that are spot welded to huge industries that harvest people's um, information while at the same time culturally they have a libertarian flavor to them that is also paranoid um, about those very powers in the same way we talk about in the episode three christian parente was on doug henwood's show and I'll right. just repeat this here, and he's uh, doing his radical Hamilton book thing. And Adolf Reed said to him after reading his book, yeah, it seems like the question I would ask my PhD students is Hamiltonianism has been the way our country has developed for the past however many hundreds of years, but the governing ideology has been Jeffersonian libertarian yeomanism. Explain. Right. 
Yeah. And yeah. that tension to me exists in a similar structure with uh, information paranoia and like the libertarian Habermasian tech utopianism of the 2010s. Wow. It is really like you could see too part of it is from there's a tradition from before the internet was that legible to corporations where mm. it was guys with long beards like building Unix and they were, you know, just like, I felt like a lot of them were kind of naive maybe about what was going on around them and the people who were using them, but they at least, you know, had certain sort of like hippie-esque beliefs about what things should be like. And they were kind of wanting to put that into things like the internet and this new connectivity of people. And that kind of turned into the hacker ethos, the hacker manifesto that came out and really it feels like the possibility of that died somewhere and it, that weirdly, I don't know, it kind of limps on in a way in people, you know, maybe like Kim.com and these kinds of things. But, you know, I have been pretty plugged in my whole life and I haven't felt like that's actually been possible in a while, you know, like something clearly changed to me. Like I saw something and was just like, yeah, we're all totally legible to the corporations in the state at this point, And that's just it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I want to come back to the idea of like what communication does in the left space. But I mean, John, what you're talking about, like, obviously like, cause we're doing like in, in pod citations, but like Fred Turner's great book from, from cyber cult, from counterculture to cyber culture is mm. just so, I mean, it's magisterial. And, you know, so he's talking about the long bearded hippie guys that are like, look, we're going to take these communication technologies and go, you know, they thought of themselves as like going indigenous, you know, going, mm -hmm. being communards and understanding like the essential human mechanics and technology through the high points of, of kind of American Cold War technology. And, and of course the metaphor or the, the, the founding idea, the whole earth catalog that, that picture from the moon of the earth. And once we see ourselves in the universe and from this standpoint, we will understand kind of like whatever the universal mm -hmm. languages, technologies, rationales that unite us and all this kind of stuff. Interestingly, I just came across a book, uh, technology as religion. I will I'll send you the citation later. Um, but there's an incredible quote from Werner von Braun saying the exact same fucking thing while he's working for NASA. That once we get to the moon, there will be the end of war and we'll have this universal communion through understanding, you know, a, this kind of technological accomplishment. So like, there's the contradiction, kind of hippie counterculture transcendence and kind of, you know, Nazis working for the Cold War apparatus, <laughs> having the same kind of utopian ideal. So there's something not enough in these ideals, right? Well, there's uh, a sort of a, perpe a perpetual sour grapes, right? It like doesn't happen. And then yes. it's sort of like the disavowal and the recommitment. Well, it really yeah, feels like the thing of our moment has been people kind of realizing that discourse doesn't work the way that we thought discourse worked. Like <laughs> yes. it's not a neutral space where we're just working out our different ideas and then we reach some sort of consensus and then enact consensus and I think if you look at what a lot of like people are getting into trying to talk about and research, it is sort of like, okay, what's the actual history of like United States institutions over the 20th century and how does power actually sort of seem to operate or I won't say power, let's say governance. How does governance operate? Mm -hmm. How are decisions 
speech. And what does that have to do with us all talking to each other, especially then in newspapers, but now like on the internet? Because it has always felt like there's an extreme naivete about the fact that like Facebook and Twitter at all were built sort of to harness negative emotions for repeat use. That really like almost never was brought up in any of the extremely optimistic discussions of what these platforms were going to do. And, you know, if you go talk to somebody who worked at Facebook, you're like, yeah, we built it because people who are like really pissed off or like insecure keep coming back. And so we just figured we would heighten those emotions. And somehow this is supposed to be like the new public sphere, but obviously it's not. And no one has really figured out what that means for like any of what we're doing. Yeah. So uh, another guy, I'm the citation guy, but yeah, of course, Jody Dean and communicative capitalism, the, mm-hmm. the, the notion that our actual discourse, not in this Habermasian sense, that somehow the left believes that we'll work it out. We'll bracket it. We'll preface each statement in these like little micro blogging mm-hmm. platforms to, to synthesize something through the discursive act. So this mm-hmm. is like, you know, this in, in, in a sense, ascribing the same utopian belief to what this act, this mechanism will do for politics as any other kind of technocrat. Um, but Jody Dean says, look, in communicative capitalism, we get caught in these kind of circuits, these drives towards this ideal of democracy and all this kind of stuff. But of course, what we're communicating, it's not the, you know, our, 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 our messages have fundamentally been commodified and the, the realm of exchange value governs over use value. Mm-hmm. So we're like not even really expressing what we might intend to express within the failures of language itself. Mm-hmm. We're kind of positioning, charting ourselves, being strategic, accruing and accumulating whatever this kind of nebulous thing, influence or, or some jouissance from, you know, owning or trolling or whatever. And then if you really do believe that this is like a means to figure out every tendency, we have a leftist space or a left-ish space that can put in kind of like spider charts, like here's this tendency and here's why Chapo Trap House is like the new Nazi uh, vanguard and here's this position. And and it's like, that is an insane, you know, an insane person's view of politics and of discourse and also aligns perfectly to how these technologies want to like put us in lanes. And I I would also say that like, it makes sense to me that, Mm -hmm. okay, so we're taking a look at this general problem, right? Which is the problem of discourse and consent, which Mm -hmm. seems greatly troubled by these platforms and how we have conceived of democracy as at least containing a discursive element from the Athenian agora till now. That has been part of consent. And there have also been, from Plato till now, anxieties about the status of truth within those discursive practices. In other words, if you get a demagogue or you have sophists or you have uh, hegemonic advertisers or you you have all of these things, that those create problems of good governance and generating true and good outcomes for the polity. Whether or not that's possible, that's a definite anxiety. Now, I can see in tech world, you would look at something like a blockchain, which essentially creates an open wallet that is like, okay, here is X amount of Bitcoins. They have this processing number. 
To make sure that they're real, you need to process them to this degree. We can all see that they've been processed to this degree. We can tie it back to who owns them. This is real. There is allegedly zero ambiguity about who's doing what, with whom, why, and where, right? That's to a certain degree. And that, I think, seems to relieve certain fears about, um, let's say, the power discrepancies that go abjured by the contract itself or something like that, when in fact it might actually recapitulate those, right? And that's some of what you've been looking at. Cool. No, hey, uh, amazing segue. And I, I definitely, I want to get to the, 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 the Pacific element of this. And it's, it's, this is going to be a nightmare because blockchain is discourse, is a quote unquote technology, right, is right. a form of occultic, you know, essence. <laughs> yeah. All of those things at once. Yeah. Um, but as you say, our anxiety about truth, the, the blockchain is positioning itself right now to be the thing that will get us to Web 3.0, get us to love the internet again, mm-hmm. right? By, as you say, fully representing every transaction in absolute um, terms with the kind of precision of datafied truth, whatever that means. It's very um, for money. Yeah. And of course, there is a very narrow realm in which blockchain technology, i.e. cryptocurrencies, does sort of do something like that. If you are in any of these kind of crypto economies, well, chances are, you know, like 90 plus percent of the various currencies out there are complete pump and dump scams. But let's say you take blockchain. Well, okay, you, for, you got to forget that blockchain, uh, Mt. Gox, and all these kind of crypto exchanges have been uh, robbed or hacked or whatever. Um, and you People have been to, fleeced in the market. Of course. And you have to say that like, oh, know your customer rules and banking is a bad thing. Um, and you also have to accept that, yes, we should have this gold bug like fetish for meaningless calculations that secure and encrypt the whole kind of distribution of this information and exchange and is consuming an insane amount of energy. You have to like, uh, and you have to discount the fact that this is not a currency. It's a speculative kind of digital Mm -hmm. commodity, but, 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 but if you can push all that to the side, you say, look, yeah, you can see, in this very abstracted sense, this, this wallet interacting with this wallet, this exchange, there it is, there's the stuff. And the proponents of blockchain governance or blockchain solutions to whatever, uh, voting, uh, kind of corporate structures or interfacing with government or whatever it may be, and in the NGO sector, aid and food distribution, they're saying that we can take what in a very limited sense works and expand that outwards into like real human systems, which is a crazy idea. Is it absolutely like, this is where data uh, confronts, you know, the complexity of the social realm and, uh, and you know, the, the level of faith you must, you know, have in like crypto um, to, to make this something like a, a realm of exchange and money then you got to ratchet that up to a thousand to say that actually this is 
a way that we could organize things in a human society. Right. But, so the way it would work is something like, um, I think what's his name, like Mencius Moldbug, who does the patchwork idea. He's the right wing thinker where it's like you have a discrete pro- plot of land that's governed by whatever sovereignty or polity decides on. And things are verified as official decisions through this sort of hyper contract of the blockchain. Or in other words, everyone sees and understands their concretized consent within uh, that framework. To, to the libertarian thing, it is about imagining the social realm as an endless form of kind of like contract uh, relationships mm-hmm. that are secured digitally and mm-hmm. are uh, adjudicated. And so, right, and so by secured, we mean, I think, like publicly legible and verified, right? Like that's... Is that well, what secured means? This gets, all right, all right. So this is this all right. This is the great grift of of cyber libertarianism <laughs> of tech utopianism in general, which is to say, uh, in Amer- in the U.S. at least, um, there have been efforts to get the state to recognize blockchain contracts <laughs> because at the end of the fucking day, that's why the state exists. Yeah, who pays the cops? And, yeah, and. Uh, and for blockchain to ever really work, it's got to spend mm-hmm. uh, this next little bit of time convincing the rest of the world in this post-politics malaise that this is the one solution we got going. So it's time for you, state government, national government, corporate entity, financial entities to get real, to get serious about developing ideas in this space. And then, you know, being the first to plant the flag or getting the state state's imprimatur over what you're saying is a purely abstracted data encrypted representation of, of your organization and how it's governed. And it's like, well, if you need the state in the end, these are all political human kind of decisions and calculations that we seek to disavow by saying that the blockchain mm-hmm. is this, this form of magic. And like, I mean, to give you an example, and this again, this is sort of like the for the last six years, kind of like the Silicon Valley buzzword or one sort of like idea that they've got kicking around, so they're gonna keep going with it. But in in uh, April of this year, I think it was the head of the World Economic Forum took to writing a blog post about how blockchain backed encrypted data markets is the future of not just like contact tracing, but will allow us to solve cancer diabetes covid uh, yeah just shoot for the stars fella yeah. um, so it's going to so be 20 gonna, they're going to do a 23 and me coin so yeah it's something like that i mean it's it is a metaphor for packing in as much mm-hmm. of the kind of grandiose uh tech transcendence of the politicals as is possible and one of one, one of my favorite things that happens in in blockchain is uh because you ask a blockchain developer or booster to like explain it simply and it's they can't because you know a digital ledger that's encrypted is not quite sexy enough and when it comes to like the governance tech it's not really what it does either it's this kind of magic ethereal thing so they 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 quote arthur c clark's third law that technology appears as magic uh, and one of my favorites is Ethereum, their chief uh, communications officer is like, you know, you don't need to use, know how electricity works to 
uh, use to a flip light on bulb. a white switch. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and people are going to use blockchain because it's great. So who cares what blockchain is? So would you say, because that was actually interesting when you were getting into the, it's going to be like an encrypted form of solving COVID because people are solving COVID without, you know, like they're encrypting it, but it's all going straight to the central government. We'll say like in South Korea or China, like they're very easily able to use state power to force people to follow guidelines there. Um, You know, and then the rationale is like, it's for the good of everybody. So we're all going to do it. Whereas I think that's a big problem in Western governments because people are like, you just can't do that. Like I would rather everyone die as how a lot of people feel about that. And so is the idea that blockchain can come in and be this intermediating technology where we have the power to use big data to control lots of things, but somehow everything's still like private and like I haven't given up my way of life as you know, a American or whatever. Yeah, I'd say, all right, so uh, also post-COVID-19, there was a there was a Microsoft, Amazon, Facebook blockchain hackathon around COVID. I forgot about that one. But basically, we're, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, I man. Oh, man. I, I, listen, John, I don't think people have really thought this through that far, but we are kind of in the realm of like Palantir and governance tech, like big data governance tech. And um, everybody... So, I mean, look, Facebook with Libra, um, okay, this is not a COVID response, but they're saying, oh, this is blockchain. So everybody's going to wheel out a kind of big data tech governance solution to COVID and talk about encryption and, uh, and say it's blockchain or, or something like that. And, um, and again, like what is interesting, I guess, about blockchain is it's sort of, of course, it's cyber libertarian, but it is sort of like, populist in the sense of, you know, if we're talking about AI or machine learning, there's a level of like complexity, like we're, you know, a lot of people running this stuff don't really know how to wield it or grapple with it. But, but blockchain is, is, is a kind of like cyber libertarian empowerment, control your data, take your data back and make free choices, free association, um, enter into, Hey, you know, you're, Patreon patrons could be participated in the blockchain and have like a voting about which topic to cover and, and like just kind of bells and whistles that make you feel like empowered. But yeah, so that's the kind of like empowering people to feel some sort of nano bit of control or, and again, um, my pal Dave Columbia writes about the importance of like techno mastery. Mm-hmm. as an ideology, as, as something that, uh, you know, makes us feel somehow, you know, potent in, mm-hmm. in, in our lives in, in some sense. But yeah, I guess that's why I wonder about the intermediating like aspect of it between you and like a government supposedly, because it will Emmett, you brought up Curtis Yarvin, who I wouldn't call like a libertarian in any sense that most people would recognize. Um, mm-hmm. He definitely, you know, I won't say what he espouses necessarily because it's sort of ambiguous, but there's a lot of room in there for like centralizing sovereignty, maybe better for people's lives than having it be an aggregate of a bunch of people. Yeah. Um, so there's like a, but we are not comfortable with that in America and other places. So a lot of like what you're saying is there seems to be like, okay, we'll deploy a lot of stuff that makes people feel like they're taking part in something, but really they're not. 
like in any meaningful way. And, but so it's masking like maybe a very similar operation to like what we would consider totalitarian or something like that. Absolutely. And I would say that Deleuze's society of control is a really great way of thinking about it. And he talks about being devigilized. So law happens as code and it happens. uh, I think legal scholars, I'm faking it here, but I think they call it ex ante. So like, the code predeterminedly kind of adjudicates your access to resources. Mm-hmm. Like let's say you are kind of getting uh, some sort of government resource or benefit um, or your relationship to an employer. It's, in, it's imposed before any kind of potential mediation and it does away with like nullification clauses under some sort of like public interest. So yes, I mean, uh, a Yarvin, Moldbuggian kind of totalitarian, uh, devigualized relationship to the law in which code is law. And I think this, the role of the state would be to, uh, so the Arizona Electronic Transaction Act has smuggled into it something that like, blockchain is a technology of absolute truth. Mm. So like, it's just this crazy. Yeah, there yeah, yeah. it is. There's the money so, shot. So if you were to say, yeah, I'm involved as like a, uh, I have a blockchain contract with this employer or this organization and here's what is unjust. And it's like the, it's, it's part of like a general push, not just blockchain, but in the kind of digital realm to turn law code into law and to have code as a kind of like supreme, uh, you know, code is speech in this kind of realm above mm. the grubby material kind of political complexity. Yeah. So very totalitarian. Yeah. I think now would be a good time to like pivot to how this is playing out in the Pacific. So there's, a, there's a couple things going on. And I think, I think it's good to set up the Pacific in, um, in a kind of like an Anglo American uh, imperialist context. And then I'll talk about like, why the development or the NGO sector is big into like being innovators and disruptors. That's part of the other, ugh. I mean, look, the Pacific, we have to think of, you know, Nevada, nuclear tests, Hiroshima, Marshall Islands, Bikini Atoll, all within a kind of like nuclear military technological sort of circumference. And you know, the, 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 the importance of this kind of like nuclear moment, I mean, I mean, I love how in the latest season of Twin Peaks that like basically Bob emerges from the crater of this nuclear moment, that this is like the terror in like our world that uh, unleashes like this darkness through technology and then mm-hmm. also creates the splendors of late 20th century consumer culture. So these mm-hmm. things are like kind of intertwined. And I mean, I, Bikini Atoll, which, uh, you know, the Marshallese are obviously still poisoned, unable to get redress, unable to return. Um, There's a fantastic story about a U.S. soldier who gets poisoned there while just doing some odd job. And the veterans, like health services or whatever, like that's not a wartime injury. So we're going to give you absolutely nothing. Mm -hmm. And then he was invited by the Japanese government to come to Japan, be considered one of the people who was affected, like they had a special Japanese term for people who were affected by the bombs. 
he was made an honorary member of that group and then given medical care in Japan, wow. which is sort of like an interesting kind of encapsulation of this whole sort of thing. I, I also love how, um, again, I'm sort, of, I'm sort of being a bit tangential. It's kind of how my brain works. But um, I love uh, Kiyoshi Kurosawa's horror films and how there is uh, the film Cure where people disappear on the internet and are, are they become absorbed by the internet and then all that is left is like a nuclear shadow. And so this linking of like our technological society and its alienation to that trauma and horror um, I think is, uh, it works for me. Um, but, uh, and, and listen, but Bikini Atoll, the very site of the blast becomes the symbol for Western escapism, leisure tourism. And in fact, the very routes of army R and R are like the infrastructure that create the tourism economy of the yeah. Pacific. So all of this is totally integrated, inseparable in the Pacific. Um, the great, the late great Teresia Tiawa um, is an uh, incredible, incredible author. She did her PhD under Angela Davis mm-hmm. um, and passed away in 2017. She's co-author, editor of this uh, wonderful book here on my shelf, Anglo-American Imperialism and the Pacific. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, she is of the Pacific diaspora and that whole experience was about having uh, a father in the American Navy Mm -hmm. and, you know, bouncing around Fiji, New Zealand, all the rest of it and understanding that that, that kind of um, geography was, was a kind of military imperialist geography. So I became really sharply attuned. I taught broadcast journalism in Fiji at the university of the South Pacific for three years. I, I, I loved it. It's great. Love it's really hard to um to leave Fiji, but there you go. Um great experience. And I, I kept brushing up against kind of like American soft power stuff out of mm-hmm. the embassy there. And like I don't wanna be like, you know, this is hardly like being in uh Saigon or whatever, but like it was interesting. It was interesting to observe the ideas of communication technology and a kind of American universalism. And of course, in 2010, um, you know, Hillary's uh, State Department published the, the Freedom to Connect Doctrine. This was really important stuff. And uh, we were gonna speak with one voice, one language. And the pamphlets are like, uh, you've got Douglas Rushkoff, who's like one of these uh, web TED Talk kind of house uh, philosophers writing for the State Department. You've got the kind of obligatory murals of, of women in Egypt painting Facebook on the wall. You've got all this kind of <laughs> stuff going. And this, uh, you know, I was not quite like pilled on like Arab Spring and that kind of stuff yet, but there's some stuff happening. But the, the one crystallizing thing that happened in my university was like a hackathon coding for fish which was a very funny kind of thing. And if you've been in the Pacific and you know, we have real kind of like technical deficits and, you know, like it's not a digital culture or if it's a digital culture, it's, we've got Facebook coming in and doing, I don't know if you've heard of free basics, but like it's out of this kind of weird space that blockchain finally happens. Mm -hmm. And it's like, we are launching a global 
Pacific Summit, a tech camp uh, to kind of launch the arrival of blockchain as this solution to the region. And once I saw this, this actually happened in 2018 after I was out of Fiji, I was like, okay, let's go. Let's write up. While I was in Fiji at the time, it's kind of difficult politically to sometimes write about this kind of stuff. And I just kind of went full bore into this. And what I, what I discovered was shocking. What issues in the Pacific do they think this is going to solve? So the, the real uh, flagship kind of project was around tuna supply chains. And in a certain sense, and I met, there's one real Pacific blockchain developer who is actually of the Pacific. Really nice guy named Kenneth Catafano. And this is honestly, like it's a kind of a neoliberal extractive commodity process that seeks to add value through the use of blockchain. And so it's business as normal. And so in that sense, it's one of the least nefarious applications. But basically the idea would be You've got a, a fleet that logs in, that uh, catches fish, that tags the fish, and then logs the processing point, and then it gets on a truck or it gets on wherever it needs to go. And then by the time it gets to your restaurant, there's a little QR code and you click it and it'll tell you the story about your fish. And it's like, it's a kind of weird sense of like meta empowerment. Of right, like, it's oh. like Foursquare for your fish. So yeah. The only value it adds is sort of like a non-material like aspect to your dinner in a way. Like it's aesthetic almost. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's like, so it's, it's not actually awesome. improving the supply chain. Well, in theory, you could uh, make sure there were not slaves on the... They, they would like to ensure that there's not slaves working on the boats or that the quotas work. But they, they, they tell you, look... Uh, well, one thing is, yeah, so you're right. It's an augmented reality experience of sashimi. Um, <laughs> but it doesn't actually have connectivity. Like they have to use, and, and they don't actually have uh, an industry in Fiji capable of developing what's called near field communication tags that would feed into the blockchain. But the point of the blockchain is it's supposed to be this universal distribution of information. And what ends up happening is that the fishermen and it's questionable what value they might have from seeing who's eating it in Brooklyn or whatever. Um, <laughs> but they don't get that information because they feed in because they're, they're just putting these near frequency, near field communication tags, which have to be bought from Australia and have mm -hmm. to be serviced in Australia. There's not actually like a real industry capable of, of sustaining this. And so it has less, it has nothing to do with the universal kind of, distribution of knowledge. And of course, it is bringing, um, you know, one of its largest foreign currency earners of the country of Fiji into this supply chain at which, you know, the end user and the American distributors have a great vantage point over that information system, and the local does not. And the local developer was very honest with me. He's like, look, we think that the FDA is going to set this as a market entry requirement. So we're gonna have to we're gonna we have to do this because it's it's and, and this is often if you look at WTO agreements they have like sanitary mm -hmm. or other they're called SNSs or something market capitalization requirements that force you to like spend a lot of money to get market entry mm -hmm. and so for blockchain if this were to take off it would be a cost a technological cost imposed upon 
local fleets, and it does nothing to deal with like, you know, there are massive Chinese vessels that they're with no enforcement mechanisms for these countries to actually police their own catchment areas. If you are a local Fijian, you get sea grade cat food, tin meat. The fish doesn't even come ashore. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like Fijians do not eat tuna. Like that's just not a, you know, that's just not a thing. It doesn't. So it is a neoliberal tech garnish at best. And if this were to really take off, if you will, it is a kind of like data control over this kind of whole set of, to, to your uh, preoccupation, Emmett, commodity supply chains. Yeah. Um, yeah. It seems like, you know, one way that we might understand like how this fits into a sort of imperial narrative is exactly what you were talking about in terms of like being able to even enter the market, you have to clear a certain threshold. And so yeah, of course, yeah. Larger fleets from larger places are going to be able to handle that. Nobody's going to let the tuna in the Fiji area go to waste. If that puts the Fiji fleets out of business, then too fucking bad for them. You know, yeah, someone yeah. else and is going to come in and scoop that up because they can meet those market requirements. So right. they might that's be right. getting out ahead of this, and that's part of how they're hedging. You know, and 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 the way the tuna industry works is like government contract out to a, a, you know mm-hmm. Australian, American, British, French, whatever. Like mm-hmm. uh, that's generally how it works, but. What ends up happening, one of the big showpiece events at every kind of like Ethereum conference is time now for our blockchain sashimi. And the, the CEO of this- You're kidding, uh, like that, this is the thing yeah, that they're- That's the thing. It's like the magic. This is part of the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody, I want you to take out your phone and I want to tell you the story of, of, of Kenneth. And Kenneth is a guy who grew up, or they, t- they talk about him as if he's in a small grass hut programming on you know a transistor radio or something like yeah. it's, it's it's ridiculous like story that's part of the spectacle of like technology will liberate these mm-hmm. people and all this kind of stuff and again this is the one with the most merit like i'm telling you it's uh from from here we only get into like richard branson necker island okay so that's exactly where i want to go to next why don't you give me the <laughs> worst case scenario all right Okay, okay. One of the spokespersons at the uh, U.S. tech camp, blockchain tech camp. Um, oh, my God. Her, I don't know. I could bring the name up, but it doesn't really matter. But she is a head. She's the head of the Global Blockchain Business Council. Mm-hmm. And her presentation was like, just basically like, blockchain, we'll do this, we'll do that. The Republic of Malta is already doing this. Get on board the future train. Okay. Mm-hmm. You go yeah, to the... Yeah. Uh, the future belongs to Malta as it always does. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The GBBC is... You go to their website and they're like, we are the champions. They're, they're a lobby group, essentially, globally for blockchain. And like, we are at the vanguard of the next multi-trillion dollar industry. And you go to their about page and it's... Uh, first conceptualized on Richard Branson's Necker Island and launched at Davos. The GBBC is the idea to bring the best developers, innovators, thinkers, humanitarians to lead this global blockchain revolution. And from there, we find their chief, or their chief economist is one, uh, Hernando de Soto. He was dubbed the Frederick von Hayek of Latin America and was was uh, Fujimora of Peru, 
was his kind of like Milton Friedman. And, um, uh, Hi. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the old, the old ghouls are back basically. Yeah. And DeSoto is, he's also like pals with like Muhammad Yunus. If you remember the sort of, this was just sort of like also in the Pierre Omidyar realm. Um, but their big belief was that uh, the problem of development is that there are not enough property rights in the developing world. It's mm. that people are excluded from the bounties. From of, the regime of capital, yeah. Yes. And so we need microloans and private property uh, formalized. And of course, insecurity of land tenure is a massive fucking problem. But that mm -hmm. is not the same as saying, let's make everybody a nano-capitalist, right? Yeah. Like, Usually that claim is always followed by, and thus we need to have land reform or the state mm -hmm. will collapse. Mm -hmm. But that's the exactly. first time I've ever heard microloans. Yeah, I think, yeah. yeah, that's sort of the response because like one of the things that people don't want to do, and this is also incredibly true of the green left, is mm -hmm. um, let these developing countries actually finish developing. Oh man, they which would require a level of sovereignty that yes. would be would make microloans kind of moot because they'd be running the show themselves. The the, the hatred for the developing the developing world state that the NGO crowd. I mean, of course, the NGO development sector exists to preclude um, that from happening. Yeah, uh, there's a dam in uh, I think Congo that um, they're trying to. It, figure it'd be bigger than three gorges um and would of yeah. course like totally change that region because it people could turn lights on and one of the major groups um suppressing it is a uh environmentalist river rafting ngo uh, uh because it would destroy the river that they love to raft on right 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 well the pacific is full of uh escapist fantasies reconnection with nature much like the whole earth crew and, mm -hmm. and 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 i haven't even gotten to the sick kind of fetishization of indigenous people that the blockchainers have you got a couple hours um but <laughs> check this out. back back to DeSoto. DeSoto wrote a great uh, editorial or a very uh important editorial about what his role in pushing blockchain and why he sees blockchain as the future for for development and and for the world economies like he basically lays out look there are 150 to 200 trillion dollars of developing world assets unaccounted for, not brought into the realm of the market, of property, of tradable rights, and blockchain is the technology that will do this. And we are seeing this happen in Fiji. Now, Fiji mm -hmm. has um, really interesting history, uh, but one of its kind of, um, I guess, claims to sovereignty is that 90% of the land is held in uh, tribal communal trusts that are administered um, by a indigenous uh, land trust board, which is a government department. And they've actually done some really interesting reforms, which is to flatten the payment structure for royalties for when people lease out lands to whatever resorts, whatever, whatever is going on. Um, but par and but look, this is a government ministry in a cash-strapped country that 
I want to say doesn't have the the policy chops to understand what blockchain rationalization and modernization really entails. Mm -hmm. Um, And the Asian Development Bank is basically leading a project to transfer. And this is this is land that is held because they uh, Fijians, when they saw the British Land Trust Commission come with their surveying tools and all the rest of it, like understood, they sabotaged the whole process. They knew that like cartography was power, was appropriation. Mm -hmm. Um, And now the Asian Development Bank is leading and championing this project to put all indigenous lands on a blockchain, which will be equally staked between the government, the landholders and uh, private foreign investors. So for the first time, I can't uh, imagine there being any power asymmetries built into that contract. Like foreign investors can just buy in. Ba- basically would be like a virtual marketplace mediated through an app. I mean, they literally say it's an app. And one of the, one of the, the problems that they're trying to um, deal with is that it can be often hard to like track down landowners and get people on the record. Yeah. And, um, and so it's sort of like, it's, got a voting process, it's got transparent pricing, which is a problem, right? It's, well, problem, who's, I mean, it's a problem for investors, right? It's a problem for marketizing um, this asset, like bringing this into the, even if we're just talking about um, uh, leasing, not private, not full expropriation, this is a problem, like understanding where the market's at. But it's also, it's full of, we now have the ability to understand this land as a commodity with all of its various natural resources, with all of the potential for biopiracy. That's a big thing that um, Fijians are, and uh, people of the Pacific are very wary of, is you know, biotech and, and this sort of stuff. And it's just, it's, it's, it's happening. It's happening. Mm-hmm. It's happening in Fiji. Basically, there's very little opportunity for the state of Fiji to exercise any kind of like control over what's going to happen you know if this if this is the way that things go is that kind of how you see it yeah and i mean look uh god this is look this is a government that uh came to power through a coup in 2006 that is very corrupt um the one thing i'll say is that the opposition is is more or less Mm ethno-nationalist and so they have helped this current corrupt government have helped stamp down civil ethnic strife, but they're not worried about these issues at all. And, and so well, if and, the government and, like came to power that was worried, they would kind of find themselves sort of in the position of like Greece or something, just like not a lot you can do at that point. Yeah. I mean, look right now, the prime minister of Fiji is basically like on his Twitter page, auctioning off islands to, as like, Hey, come escape COVID in Fiji and buy one of our islands. I mean, like, this is like the pure raw power of what, and like this is the product of Pacific escapism mm-hmm. that is at the end of the day, yes, there's a tourism industry, but copra or phosphate pale as a commodity in comparison to just pure Pacific escapism, which is, if you think about Peter Thiel floating island, mm-hmm. the California ideology, but as, but as a Pacific ideology with crypto islands then it then it makes perfect sense and this is where 
this is where Vanuatu comes in the mix. But mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I think Peter Thiel's a really interesting figure here because um, it seems like in so here's an interesting fact: Alain Dubenoist, who's a French New Right thinker, Thiel's press just put out. Um, I think last year, a collection of his essays on democracy and populism since like the Mm -hmm. 70s. And guess who has a blurb on it? Peter Thiel, because Peter Thiel is cozy with Thiel's Press because they're, of course, responsible for making Carl Schmitt available in English. And, And Peter Thiel has been, I think, in a way, I would say has sort of shed a certain libertarianism in Silicon Valley and has adopted a more um, state-focused right real politic. Yes. yes. Right? So he's not, he's not doing the utopia thing anymore. No, 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 no. no, no. This is, he's, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, if you've seen the ipo letter that i read the ipo letter it was insane yeah so so, yeah yeah, so that was was that palantir's the ipo or yeah yeah. yeah. so new zealand citizen peter teal i've i've been on i've seen his land i've been on a boat we cruised by it in uh, lake monica it's uh you know full kind of hobbit fantasy escape kind of realm i mean yeah this is at the end of the day it boils down to what? I mean, technologies of imperialism, technologies of the state, and needing the state to buttress your interests, right? Mm-hmm. And so the, the, and look, part of the, the hopelessness of our moment and why, you know, the stupidities of, of tech solutionism as like sort of like the only game left or the only realm left where something might happen that could, you know, quote, save or, or whatever, change anything is that this is the kind of raw formation of tech capitalist power. And Peter Thiel is honest. And that, that IPO letter is like saying, and, and there is a really, and, and Jason Sadowski has been talking about this. There is a real pushback against um, uh, Google, Facebook kind of ad tech. And, mm-hmm. uh, and, and this is Sadowski's critique of Zuboff's surveillance capitalism book is like, Oh, like, the problem with uh, our tech backlash today is like ads and privacy. And, and in this sense, Peter Thiel and Alex Karp in their letter are like saying Silicon Valley has been decadent and in this kind of, you know, stupid realm of mm-hmm. fake kind of... What we're uh, really about is the martial valor of the state and we will absolutely exactly. help ICE process all of its data really fast. That's right. It's a war yeah. for civil. And, it's not like a reader's uh, digest of the IPO letter. Yeah, pretty much. I've never read it. Okay. Yeah. Oh, it's it's, it's really a trip. something. And and uh, yeah, Facebook and Google have sort of have been cut adrift in the kind of like they've been hung out to dry and receive a lot of public flack. And and it is very strange that uh, that Zuboff is in this realm of providing a kind of cheap critique of like, oh, they're annoying how they push ads on us. It's like when Obama was talking about bank fees after the GFC. It's this right, kind of yeah. pseudo-critique. It reminds me of the critiques way. of television, right? So right. you have the sort of like, oh, this is like rotting your brain, like mass culture critique. Yes. But then like the more substantive critique is of course like, not that like mass culture is inherently bad. It's like, how come everyone writing all these shows is somehow related to someone in the CIA? And like, you know, what are these other things? Like there's a more substantive thing behind 
this tertiary yeah. critique that becomes the more popular one. And what is interesting about Teal and then his pal Alex Karp or a Tucker Carlson or a Richard Spencer is when they decry the decadence of like uh, Silicon Valley firms that are just making it easier for like wish and kind of like Chinese gulag products to pop up on our feeds. Like, you know, there is something there that mm -hmm. is then of course taken up by them in their whatever blood and soil kind of civilizational conception. And of course, these are the only people capable of claiming the state right now. Like I absolutely want state power to, I don't know, anti-monopoly might not be strong enough for what needs to happen to mm -hmm. the big companies, but let's just start there because we have no conception of state power, uh, well, at least, you know, in America. Mm. Um, and in New Zealand, we have these things. Well, it's, it's actually really funny to see how the Australians are trying to do some stuff and are being like mocked is like these idiots, you know, like they think, you know, that's the, that's the politics of the past. Like, yeah. Don't they know politics. that Bono said in 2002 that the big mistake right. was re relying on the state and what you needed to do was use the power of companies to sell gap genes that then enrich Africa. Like don't these dumbass exactly. prison colony Aussies know? Yeah. So, so here's where we are. Like the, the rights, the, the fascists can make this critique and in it, well, the, the, you know, and this is the weird thing too, like, uh, is the current, you know, understanding Trump through the lens of fascism, like, you know, he's taking the, the, the forms of state power that already exist and that the Democrats and the resistance don't want to fundamentally actually touch or address. Mm -hmm. And so calling it fascism is kind of weird because normally they take state power, radically transform it create paramilitary stru uh, structures to, to, they don't need to create paramilitary structures, right? DHS, ICE, all the rest of it. And no one on the Democrats is, are resisting that fundamental thing. So like, I think of this more as just- And there's American no left to crush. There's no incipient, exactly. there's no alternative form that, this is something we've talked about before on the pod, is that the protean characteristic of early 20th century politics doesn't exist anymore. That's the net result of Tina. There is no alternative. And there's almost like, you can almost think about communication networks and to your point, John, that we think we're doing something by doing this as creating, I mean, look, I hate to, look, I know that people say the word LARP and are mean-spirited and are not engaged with the left when they say it and blah, blah, blah. But it is this kind of pseudo superficial level of politics that feels like something and we want it to be something because goddamn something needs to happen but it's almost a kind of uh, a meta political theater uh, that's really of, that's yeah. so funny because i was it's on um god what is it Contbots podcast whatever it's called suitcast suitcast yeah. they were talking about um cancel culture and his idea is like why do why what is canceling actually and he was saying exactly that it's like discourse is working guys like oh it's working something's happening like mm -hmm. don't you see that guy just got canceled it's not fake it's not you know like yeah this isn't a theater this is where the but, real but, shit happens but yeah. also but i hate talking about i mean my university communications office is like can you write a thing about cancel culture and i was like i actually hate imagine like 
not being online and having to tell somebody about this and like oh, it, wretched, it, it, wretched. It's awful. <laughs> it's fucking awful. All it does. I did not mean to bring it up for more than to make. No, it's okay. It's okay. It's sort of but, like a widespread feature of our yeah. feeling. Yeah, that's right. And it reifies this this ter- new communicative terrain of politics, which is just not fucking politics. Yeah, it's just not. We've gone through this thing where we opened with populism and post politics, right? And then yes. we sort of like moved into the anxieties around truth, expertise, and let's say democratic consent and discourse. You know, and then we walk through some of the specific horrors that we have now and the things that are emergent from these, I would say, like um, waning utopian dreams that have hit their half-life, you know, and there's now a resurgent right that's emerging and adopting some of these things because, of course, they're staying adjacent, right? And I think that where we kind of end up is exactly what you just said, that we have bought this theater um, as a discourse that could produce consensus and thus um, articulate and enforce the will of the people. Instead, um, we have participated in our own mystification. And that might be part of why nothing really feels possible right now. So I think <laughs> I we're going to leave it here. Um, Olivier, thank you so much Good. for coming on the pod. This is great. We'd love to have you back after November. Oh, yeah. um to For talk pleasure. about uh post politics after 2020 um and, the way uh, this you was made a joy. That, thank you and emma john this was an absolute pleasure and the way you made this seem very linear <laughs> is helping me stitch together the different pieces of madness in my head uh that makes me want to talk about david lynch and blockchain and mm-hmm. like twitter is cointelpro and <laughs> Yeah. yeah, and and the nuclear bomb blasts in the Pacific. Somehow these are realms in my brain kind of cohabiting and maybe there's something there. But this is an absolute pleasure. And uh, yeah, I mean, things don't feel like they can change, but then we got to talk through that and figure something out. Yeah, we have to at least see what's happening now. So thanks so much. Cheers, gents.